visitor. I hope the time we spend here together is uh, strengthening and beneficial and uplifting for all of us who are gathered here this morning. The time we spend together in fellowship will, will edify us and that we can all leave here saying it was good to have been here together to worship God this morning. Just to follow up on what Bobby announced a few moments ago in terms of the door knocking event that is this Saturday, we had a meeting down front after services last Sunday morning, so I already know we've got a pretty good amount of people participating in that, so you know the gist of it if you were here for that. Uh, do plan to meet in the Family Life Center then at 8.30 next Saturday morning. We're going to get everything organized then and uh, final instructions and figure out who's going where, uh, but if you would like to get involved in that, you missed that little meeting just come see me today or talk to me anytime during this week. We can always use more people to participate in that. There's a quotation that's been widely attributed to Edmund Burke. I haven't been able to source it, even though it's reputed to have been said by him, and I always try to look things up and find if someone actually said it, because as Abraham Lincoln famously said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. I know that's true because I read it on the internet. But at any rate, this is usually attributed to Burke, and it does sound like something he would say, and whether he said it or not, the sentiment is true. Very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Usually, he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps into the shaded areas, areas tinted and colored just a bit, almost unnoticed by those around him, until one day, hardly aware that he's made the journey, he finds himself firmly entangled in a life of vice and corruption. We're familiar with stories like that. Some of you might have read Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, Young Goodman Brown. That's a story like that. A fellow who goes out for an evening stroll in the woods with an old man, and we realize before too long that that old man is the devil. And by the end of that story, his life is changed forever. We see stories like that in Scripture. One such story comes from the book of Judges a fellow named Samson. Now, most of us probably remember Samson's story, at least parts of it. But Samson was set apart, consecrated to God from his birth. In fact, from before his birth, he was to be God's man. But gradually, as he got older, little by little, he started to dabble in evil. Until finally, in Judges chapter 16, verse 20, there is this shocking statement. It says that the Lord departed from Samson, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Isn't that sad? Here is Samson who is to be dedicated to God by this Nazarite vow from before his birth. He's supposed to be God's man, and yet he'd strayed so far from God that the Lord left him and he didn't even realize that he'd left him. It's true of Saul, the first king of Israel, too. When we start reading Saul's story at the beginning, it seems like the dawning of this bright new age. 
Saul is a humble and modest man. He seems like he has the qualities to be a good king. God loves him, and he loves God. But we see Saul before long start to make choices that put himself first. Dark storm clouds start together. And by the end of his life, almost the last incident that we read of him, he goes and he visits the witch of Endor, a symbol of the very evil that he himself had tried to stamp out of the land earlier in his reign. But those were the types of forces that were now controlling his life. You see, it isn't that giant step from vice or from virtue into vice that we need to fear, some great climactic act of evil, some crossing of the Rubicon, here I was on the good side and now I've done some reprehensible thing. It's all the tiny little steps all along the way that incrementally, without us even noticing, lead us out of that path of light into darkness. It must have been that way for the church in Ephesus. Now, I want you to recall all the advantages that this church had. This was a church that the Apostle Paul had lived with and worked with for the better part of three years. That was the longest personal association in terms of close proximity and contact that he had with any congregation. And his feelings of affection for them were so strong that when he was going down to Jerusalem, the last journey he makes is a free man in Acts. He's arrested at the end of this. And he's on a schedule. He's trying to make it there before Pentecost. But he actually takes the extra time, spends a few days, stops at the coast at Miletus, a few miles away from Ephesus, just to call the elders of the church down there so that he can see them again and so he can warn them about the danger of false teachers that they're going to be facing and so he can exhort them to try to keep good watch over the church there. A few years later, we read that Paul's associate, his son in the faith, Timothy, was stationed there in Ephesus because evidently those false teachers that Paul warned about, they'd taken hold. And so Timothy needs to set everything in order there. So Timothy worked there for some time. And then later, according to tradition at least, the apostle John who wrote Revelation spent several years in Ephesus. He was there before his exile on Patmos when he wrote this book. So they had all of these built-in advantages, all of these close associations. And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus looked at that church and he saw a lot of positive things. He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, that's a great description of a church, isn't it? You think about some of these things here. They had done good works, and they're widely known. Jesus knows about them. He talks about the fact that these, they've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not that seems to be probably a reference to those false teachers. That danger Paul had warned about and Timothy had combated, they'd passed through that test and come out on the other side. They held fast to sound doctrine. They were right with Scripture all the way down the line. And they continued to endure, even though perhaps they faced some persecution. They remained steadfast. They hadn't quit. 
turn their back on the Lord. We'd like to have Jesus say some things like that about us, wouldn't we? Sounds pretty good. But, but, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've left your first love, some translations say. I don't even imagine that that abandoning their first love happened in one giant step either. It's not like they woke up one morning and said, you know, I don't love God anymore. Nothing as climactic as that. It was a gradual thing, step by step, piece by piece, day by day. For a while, their love for God was so great, it was infectious. It drew people in. Great sermons were preached. Good works were done. People saw that this was a a living and dynamic fellowship that they had there. They were known for that steadfast faithfulness, even in the face of persecution. But gradually, maybe, some people who had spent a lot of time praying started praying less than they used to. Some people who had given generously stopped giving as much as they did. People were going out and doing good works in the community. Stopped caring so much about doing those things. And so at this point, Jesus looks at that church and he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. Now, that might raise the question, first of all, what is first love? What does Paul, or what does John mean by this? Or Jesus, actually, he's the one saying it. What do we mean by first love? I read about someone reminiscing about their first love, and they recalled tree-lined streets and walks hand-in-hand with their beloved in the cool of the evening where they would discuss their future plans and they'd talk about what they wanted to do and uh, I'm sure there was a lot of sighing. And they had these plans to go and build a little cottage for two together, those sorts of things. And of course, when people would ask them practical questions, how are you going to do live? What are you going to do for money? Things like that. They responded in a way that was logical to them at the time. Well, we're in love. That's all that matters. That's the way that first love is. It loves that object of its affection without any hesitation, without any reservation, without anything holding it back. So what do we mean in a spiritual sense? What is first love in God's eyes? That's the love that first brought us to God. It's the love that we experienced when we first realized how much God loved us. When we first saw the cross as it really was. When we first saw our sin and ourselves as we really are. When we first realized just how much God had done for us. And we were overwhelmed with that love he demonstrated. Were you listening to David's prayer this morning? One of the first things that he said was that when we think about God, a shiver goes down our spine because of how wonderful he is. That's the feeling that we're talking about here. Do we have that? 
That's that thrill of first love. We became children of God. We experienced his forgiveness. First love looks at at mountains of trouble and it sees them as only hills to climb. It looks at roiling rivers of anxiety and stress and grief and it says that's nothing. God and I can swim through that together. It looks at stumbling blocks and it sees those only as stepping stones to show just how powerful God is. Paul is a good example of that sort of first love. Paul recognized that he owed everything to God. And in fact, if you read through his letters, you'll find him repeatedly saying things like, I'm the chief of sinners. I was an apostle untimely born. I didn't deserve what God had done for me. He was always very much aware of who he was, where he'd come from, the things that he had done in persecuting Christians. And so he's overwhelmed that God could and would love someone like him. And so he calls himself a debtor, a debtor to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to wise and unwise. In other words, because he'd been so wondrously loved by God, he owed others to go and tell them about that, to show that same love of God towards them. And in fact, it's that sort of love that causes Paul to write in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about Jews, Israel. Paul's love for them was so great. He wanted them to know the love of God demonstrated in Christ to such an extent that he says he's willing to be cursed. He's willing to be cut off from God. He's willing to spend eternity in hell if only they might come into that relationship with God through Christ. Know that same love that he did. Moses is another good example of this. And in fact, Moses prays a similar prayer to the statement Paul makes here. The Israelites were rebellious in the wilderness. You remember this. This is after the incident of the golden calf when they made the idol and said, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt, O Israel. And we read these words of intercession on the part of Moses, Exodus chapter 32. He said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses' love for God and for his people was so great that he was willing to blot himself out of God's book of life in order that they may be saved. Forgive them, God. But if you want, blot me out instead. Take me. Just save them. That's the unselfish quality of first love. That's the love that God has demonstrated to us in Christ. Self-giving, self-emptying love. That's the kind of love that we're to have for him and for others as a consequence of experiencing that love. John writes, 1 John 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's how we know it. And what difference ought that to make? 
we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That sort of love is a wonderful, precious thing. And you'd think, you'd think we'd hold on to that. You'd think that we would, would treasure that, we would protect it, and yet it, it slips through our fingers. We know that from our own experience, humanly speaking. And that same thing can happen in the spiritual realm. That's what happened to the church in Ephesus. Their love grew cold. Or they replaced it with love for something else. Or they just finally ended up going through the motions. So how do you lose that first love the way the Ephesians did? How, how does that happen? Especially in the spiritual realm. That's what we're talking about. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is, is speaking about the last days, the end of the age. And he says in verse number 12, Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's the way sin works, remember? Not by taking that one gigantic step from virtue to corruption, but just those little steps all along the way. And he says, because of that increase of sin, of wickedness, of lawlessness, Love grows cold. It was once vibrant. It was once powerful, dynamic, thriving. But because of that increase of lawlessness, it started to wither away. It's, it's like a, an ember and a fire. And you take it out of the fire, and then what happens? Pretty soon it grows cold. And then ultimately it dies. Scripture often uses the analogy or the imagery of a marriage relationship to describe our relationship with God. It does that in the Old Testament. It talks about Israel being married to God. That's why the, the prophet Hosea was to go and to take a wife who was a prostitute and who was unfaithful to symbolize Israel's unfaithfulness. And that same thing holds true in the New Testament where we have the relationship between Christ and the church described clearly in those terms, especially in Ephesians chapter 5. So I think this is a good analogy here for us too. Two people meet and they fall in love. So they spend precious time together every moment that they can and they talk about their hopes and their dreams and their plans when they're apart, they're thinking about each other. They're wishing that they were together again. And ultimately, they decide to, to get married. And they think that things are just going to continue that way, that it's going to be so wonderful. But problems come up. The stress and the strain of everyday life. There are problems on the job. There's bills to pay. There are stresses and anxieties from family fusses and feuds. And pretty soon, all of those demands, those anxieties become so great that that relationship begins to suffer. I think of a famous scene in the movie Citizen Kane. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie. If you haven't, you need to see it. And the scene's only two minutes long. I thought about actually including it here, but I thought it might just take us out of the point here. But there's this famous scene in Citizen Kane, it's only two minutes long, and it's a montage that shows the complete dissolution of a marriage over the course of 16 years and only two minutes. And all the scenes take place over breakfast. And at the beginning, you can see when they're newlyweds sitting there close together at the table, 
and how Cain, the main character, he's a newspaper man, and he doesn't want to go to the office. He's just going to go in late, etc. There's all these kind words between them. But as the years go on, and we see them aging, those words become colder and colder, till finally, the last shot, we see them at separate ends of a long table, each reading their own newspaper, no words at all spoken. Just a couple of cold glances exchanged between them. One day you're sitting on opposite sides of the table and you look at that person and you say, I don't even know you anymore. You're a stranger. I don't even recognize this person that I married. And what's happened is your love has been starved. We've probably seen that in the lives of others. Maybe, unfortunately, you've experienced that in your life. My point is, that sort of story is all too common. And if we think about our relationship between Christ and the church like a marriage relationship, that's what's happened here in Ephesus when Jesus says, you've abandoned your first love. It got starved. It didn't receive that kind of daily attention that it needed. They'd done so many good things, and they even continued to do good things. But they'd abandoned that first love. Is there a danger of that happening to us? Could that happen to us? Could that be happening to us in our own individual spiritual lives? Could that happen to us collectively as a church like it did to the church in Ephesus? I confess it is distressing when I see a good crowd here on a Sunday morning and I see so few in Bible class or here on a Sunday evening, or here on a Wednesday evening. And I know, I know, I recognize our attendance at the services of the church. That's not the sole measure of our faithfulness as Christians. I'm not saying that. In fact, you've heard me say quite the opposite from here. That old verse, Hebrews 10, 25, where we say, don't forsake the assembly. Well, that's not what that passage is talking about. And so to the extent that we've said things like that, don't forsake it. You need to check off that assembly box. That's, that's wrong. But it is a measure of our faithfulness. And it is a very visible one at that. And I'm not even thinking here primarily about services like that. I'm thinking about so many other opportunities that we have, getting involved with efforts like our door knocking volunteering at the food bank, offering to teach a Bible class, getting involved with the other opportunities for education, like the ladies' Bible class, or uh, like the singing seminar we had earlier this year, or uh, engaging in acts of service around here, or, or even, even the opportunities we have for fellowship that are so important, specific age groups like the prime timers or uh, like the activities we plan for young people or like the men's prayer breakfast, on and on and on we could go with this. I know we all have busy schedules and sometimes other commitments interfere with these things. I know that 
we all have different talents. We can't do everything, not a one of us. And Scripture doesn't expect any of us to do everything because there's a diversity of functions in the body. You might be a hand. Somebody else might be a foot. That's okay. We all have a role to play. And I know, too, that our level of spiritual fervor ebbs and flows throughout our lives. We all have times when we run hot and times when we run cold. I've experienced that, too. Believe me, sometimes preachers have existential crises when we wonder if what we say or what we do means anything at all. Does anybody even listen? <laughs> or would you notice at all if I just didn't show up on a Sunday morning? We all go through periods like that. So I'm not saying that you need to be here every time the doors are open as a matter of fulfilling that one passage. I'm saying we need to ask ourselves about our priorities in our lives. Where does God fit in? Where does the church fit in? And if you're a member of this congregation and you measure your level of commitment solely in terms of showing up here at 10 o'clock and then leaving at 11 to go eat, the problem is not that you're forsaking the assembly. The problem is a heart problem. And that's a sign of some serious spiritual malfunctions. Your love could be in danger growing cold. And I worry about that for people. We're supposed to be living lives here together in community. What we do here together should be of utmost significance to us. In that passage, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, it's literally not neglecting to meet together. That's not primarily or uh, focused on the assembly here on Sunday morning. He's talking about church. Don't stop getting together. And you need to do that in context there because you need to stir up love and good works in one another. You need to encourage each other as you see judgment coming. We're to be living life together. Day by day, the early Christians did in Acts chapter 2, experiencing that fellowship, the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, prayers, and people noticed that. They found favor with outsiders. We can't serve God in isolation. You may think you can, you're wrong, but even if somehow you can, your brothers and sisters need you, and you're depriving them if you're not more involved than you are. So the question we need to ask ourselves why are you here this morning? Why do we do what we do? Is it just out of habit? I always get up on Sunday morning and go to church. I've always done that, and it's kind of like, you know, brushing my teeth or whatever in the morning. Is it out of a sense of obligation? I feel required to be here, but my heart's not really in it. Is it out of fear? A healthy fear of the Lord is a good thing, but that motivation only takes you so far. Are we just going through the motions? Are we just here for one of those reasons? There's nothing sadder than someone going through a marriage relationship solely out of habit or out of obligation or out of fear. Unless maybe it's someone serving God and serving others out of habit or obligation or fear. And if that describes you this morning, I, I want to urge you to serve God out of love. That's still the first and greatest commandment. And that's what we're talking about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, near to it, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Rekindle that first love you once had. Find that highest motivation for doing his will. If you've lost that first love, how do you find it again? Jesus gives us a prescription. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. It's really simple and it's really direct. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Do you know where something is when you lose it? It's in the last place you left it. We all know that. Now, sometimes it's tricky to figure out where that was. But if you've lost your glasses, if you've lost your car keys, it's wherever you left it. If you can remember where that was, you can go back and pick it up. What I'm suggesting is that's what Jesus is saying here. That's the way your love for God is too. If you can remember where you lost it, you can go back and pick it up again. If you can remember a time when you experienced that wondrous love of God, when you felt that chill go down your spine, when you thought about him and what he's done, you can go back and find it. When was the last time you were touched by that love of God? If you remember that, you can go back and pick it up again because it's still there waiting for you right where you left it. God hasn't moved. He hasn't left you. He's waiting right there for you to come back and find him again. Remember what he's done for you in Christ. Remember the joy that should come with serving him. The point of this is not for it to be drudgery or duty or obligation. We should serve him and serve others out of gratitude, out of joy. Secondly, Jesus tells us how to do it, and he says two things. He says, repent and do the first works. Repent and do the things you did at first. That word repent is an extremely important word in Scripture. It's one of those weighty theological words, but it's one that we don't really like to use that much because in our world, we want forgiveness without repentance. It's cheap, watered-down grace that we seek. We don't really want to have to make any changes in our life. We just want God to forgive us as we are. Come as you are, yes. But God doesn't say you can stay that way. That's what we want. And yet what we read throughout the Bible, when John the Baptist started preaching, the very first thing he said is repent. When Jesus then started preaching, he picked up that same thing, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. When he sent the 70 out preaching two by two, the first word out of their mouth was repent. When Peter preached his sermon on Pentecost and they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. It was the theme of the prophets. When you go back and you read through the prophets and they stood before the rebellious people of Israel, they spoke with the authority of God and they said, you need to repent. You need to come back to him. It's a strong word with consequences. You look at your sin, you look at yourself, you see how ugly that it is. And you don't try to deny it. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to shift the blame and put it onto someone else. Instead, you take it to God. Say, God, it's too heavy. I can't carry this burden anymore. Repentance is turning or returning to that obedience that's owed to God. I was going one way, and now I'm walking with God. And when we do that, God says, you don't have to carry it anymore. He lifts that burden for us. That's the forgiveness that comes, but it comes only with repentance. That's when healing takes place. That's when love is restored. Finally, Jesus says, you need to do the first works. Go back and redo those things you used to do. 
Repentance isn't meant to drive us to despair. It's meant to drive us to action. It's to cause us to go out and to do something. Go back and love Christ like you did at first. Go back and serve him and serve others the way that you did at first. Remember why you became a Christian in the first place and start over again. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a Christian, but you've lost that first love. Maybe you've abandoned it. Maybe you've continued to do those things like the Ephesians did. Your, your doctrine may be right all the way down the line. You may still be doing good works. You might not have turned your back on the Lord in the sense of abandoning your faith, but, but if you don't love him like you ought, if it's not motivated, actuated by that, then it's, it's vain. It's empty. It's hollow. You need to repent. Make things right with God. Start over afresh. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. God offers you this wonderful joy that we talked about that comes with being part of his people. He offers that forgiveness if you turn to him by putting your, your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, turning to him in repentance, being buried in the waters of baptism and having your sins washed away. I hope that you would have that love for the Lord that you ought and that you would want to become his child today. Whatever your need may be, if you're subject to the Lord's invitation this morning, we invite you to come now while we stand and while we sing.